Welcome to On the Cusp, the podcast that analyzes the new forms of aggression facing liberal democracies and hears from the innovative people at the forefront of countering that aggression. I'm your host, Elizabeth Braugh, and I work on these issues as a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And I'm also writing a book about it. So watch out for that. I'll be sure to tell you all about it. Now, we seem to be on the cusp of better resilience. For a long time, resilience was treated as a national security afterthought, a distinctly unglamorous afterthought, I might add. And I recall a couple of years ago when I proposed to a NATO member state government that they should involve their population in resilience. What I proposed was that they could, for example, send out a leaflet like the Swedish government did a couple of years ago, the one called If Crisis or War Camps. I encourage you to look it up if you haven't seen it. And this government said, oh, no, no, we can't do that. It would frighten people. And then guess what? COVID arrived and people got frightened. And COVID has, in fact, driven home the point that crises, other than military attacks, can bring our societies to their knees. As we record this, nearly 450,000 Americans have died of COVID. So have more than 100,000 people in the UK and nearly 90,000 in Italy. And yet the pandemic caught most Western governments and societies at large unprepared. Now, governments clearly need to spend money and attention on the most urgent issues of the day, and pandemics weren't one. And until now, resilience hasn't been one either. But COVID has been a warning, (laughs) is still a warning. Western countries have good military defense, but are incredibly vulnerable to other threats. NATO has for a number of years had resilience baseline requirements, and Article 3 involves member states committing themselves to resilience. But nobody has really paid a lot of attention. And if you just Google Article 3 and Article 5, you'll see the difference in the number of hits. Now, during the first COVID wave, NATO found itself transporting medical supplies between member states and much else. And transporting medical supplies for civilians is obviously not a NATO task, but it doesn't really matter what its official tasks are when member states are so desperate to save citizens' lives. And this is part of a larger change I've detected, which is why we're dedicating this podcast episode to NATO and resilience, because in October last year, Secretary General Stoltenberg gave a speech focusing on the importance of resilience. And he said, among other things, resilience is in NATO's DNA. Article 3 of the Washington Treaty places a duty on allies to become more resilient. When the treaty was written, the concern was an armed attack from the Soviet Union. Today, we face a far broader range of challenges. That is why boosting resilience is a key task for the future. We need robust infrastructure and systems, power grades, ports, airports, roads, and railways. Our deterrence and defense depend on it. For example, for large operations, around 90% of military transport relies on civilian ships, railways, and aircraft. Our digital infrastructure is also fundamental, not just our ability to communicate. That ends the quote from the Secretary General. Now, Hasid Tanki, who is Canadian by nationality, leads NATO's resilience work as head of the Civil Preparedness Unit. So congratulations on this big breakthrough. Thank you very much, Elizabeth. It's a pleasure to be able to sit down with you, you know, virtually and, and be able to have this conversation. What has prompted this new focus on resilience? And I hope I'm not offending anybody at NATO by saying that you and your team toiled in in relative obscurity for a long time. And now all of a sudden your work is not just becoming relevant, but becoming something that that a lot of people are talking about and highlighting. So what has prompted this change? I think, you know, there's a lot of different factors that have been sort of contributing to that. I think 
you know, over many years, I mean, even in 2016, you remember the Warsaw commitment to, to resilience that Allied heads of government agreed to at the summit that year. At that time, you recall that the Warsaw summit also had a number of other very high profile deliverables like enhanced forward presence and tailored forward presence in the eastern flank, you know, the broader strengthening deterrence and defense posture package, cyber defense, a number of other you know, really important elements. Part of that, however, was the resilience commitment. And you're right, it was a little bit of an obscure kind of side dish, you might call it, you know, on the cusp, as you call your podcast, of sort of the main event. And I recall even at the time, there was an appreciation, certainly in the defense policy community, that, that it wasn't just about moving military forces around or, you know, preparing them or, or having a credible military defense that civil preparedness considerations were also important, that resilience more broadly defined was important, especially when you looked at issues like, you know, cyber defense, defense industrial supply chains, and other issues. This is where, you know, this idea of the baseline requirements kind of originated and heads of state and government approved and signed off on. And I think since then, you know, you recall that there was this, you know, real focus on what we call the hybrid. And there was this hybridity notion that was making the rounds and quite popular and, and you know, made a lot of people quite Got a lot, a lot of people were very busy, you know, working on this notion of hybrid. But the more I think we looked at NATO at this question of hybrid, you know, the more we realized that that actually those elements that we had talked about in, in the resilience commitment, they were becoming much more salient to our considerations of defense and security. And that, you know, some of these broader, you know, threat vectors or these vulnerabilities in this new security environment were going to be challenges that, that we needed to better address. And the section speech in October was, I think, an important sort of recognition, you know, at the highest level that these issues are now kind of center stage. There's a lot of other things that NATO is working on, for sure. A lot of activity is still underway. And we're preparing for, you know, another summit meeting later this year or heads of state and government meeting this year. But this issue is definitely now on the agenda. And so it's, it's on the agenda. But talking about this one thing, so, so what, what will happen next? What are you and your team hoping to achieve and what are you working on that you hope member states will, will take action on? Yeah, so this agenda has become so diverse. It's almost too diverse. In some ways, you know, it's, it becomes so broad, this discussion of resilience. You know, it means different things to everybody. You know, if you're an engineer or a social worker or a doctor, you know, your definition of resilience will be different. At NATO, you know, we, we have a very particular view of resilience. You know, I think for us, it's very much about this is what makes collective defense credible. It makes, you know, our society stronger. The Sekjan, another, you know, really important statement that he made recently was that, you know, our militaries can't be strong if our societies are weak. And I think that's and, a really and, important statement. And it's so true because it's also about what we signal to our adversaries. So if we are not credible if we signal military strength, but if, if our societies are, are completely unprepared, instead, that invites our adversaries to target our civil societies. Exactly. And I think that that, that idea of a broadening, more complex you know, threat environment or you know, a more complex set of vulnerabilities is something that you know, allies are looking at. And in addition to the, what we call the seven baseline requirements, you know, there is this better appreciation for you know, what, what some people would call resilient societies or a whole of society approach. And you mentioned that sort of at the, at the top end, well, that's an important element of, you know, what's the role of the private sector, given how much the military depends on the private sector for, you know, critical services and critical resources. 
transport, communications, energy, you know, key services for host nation support. These are all things that we need to have a better understanding of where the gaps are, where we need to do better. And then also in some of these other areas that are sort of growing and broadening, this new economic dimension, and NATO is not an economic actor in a traditional sense, but you know, there are economic vectors that are targeted at our society's weak spots at our vulnerabilities. So that's one element. Climate change is another sort of growing, broadening issue. People asking a lot of questions about what a change in climate means for our resilience. Emerging disruptive technologies. I mean, I could go on. Yeah. There are a lot of different elements. And I think defining the NATO comparative advantage in these is going to be an important part of the SecGen's 2030, NATO 2030 exercise and, and work towards a summit and beyond. As you say, it can be anything. And I think the challenge is that resilience needs to encompass all these areas where we don't even know where our adversaries may, may choose to zero in. Because we have so many vulnerabilities, we leave this, we present this tray of options to our adversaries. But in order to prepare, we have to focus on some, but well, which are they? But it's so important that, that NATO is, is signaling now, and its member states are signaling that this is important and, and that wider society is a resource. Something I've been struggling with is how do you measure resilience? When is the country resilient? How do you define that? And, and how can NATO member states and other countries figure out what is an acceptable level of resilience? Yeah, actually, that's a good question. I think that's one of the reasons the baseline requirements exist, is to guide nations themselves. And these are, these are requirements and standards, guidelines and evaluation criteria that nations themselves have agreed to. So this isn't something that the Secretariat has designed. It's something that nations have all signed off on. And the primary purpose of that tool, in fact, is to support national self-assessment so they can measure themselves. And this is something that not just NATO allies do, but many, many partners do as well. I can say that you know, at least two very close NATO partners, Finland and Sweden, are, are quite close in, in this conversation. And this is a one way of being able to measure and assess national resilience based on a number of quantitative and qualitative criteria. Quantitative criteria, we have a pretty good understanding about elements of, you know, so for example, continuity of government being one of them. You know, do you have, do you have a succession arrangement or do you have a government control, a government operations center that has some redundancy built into it? You know, that could apply to critical infrastructure or government services. But this question of a measurement in some ways can be a bit of a red herring sometimes when you talk about this in deterrence terms, because how do you really measure the effect of you know, your posture vis-a-vis -vis an adversary. But resilience is something that can be measured. And I think one of the things that we're hoping to achieve as we take on this next bound of work is to become a little bit better at that you know, and to be able to work with the allies and our partners in better addressing that and develop that kind of best practice as we develop a community of practice and interest so we can better measure resilience. And one thing, interestingly enough, you know, looking in at, on some of the impact of COVID-19, reading some, some interesting stuff lately about the impact on the U.S. health healthcare system. I'm interestingly interested in, the, in this notion of time and measuring the gaps in time. So how long does it take for a nation to recover a service in the event of a disruption versus how long does it take for them to fully recover? And these are some useful elements in, in further defining how best we might encourage nations to meet certain standards. You know, do you need a certain amount of time to meet a certain requirement, which, you know, would depend on the particular sector, which might actually help nations start to have a, a better sense of what they need to be able to achieve? Because that, that is really the fundamental issue is, 
you know, how do I know when I'm resilient? And everybody will have a different case. Exactly. And you mentioned the private sector earlier. This is where I think national ambitions and NATO ambitions converge with the ambitions or the needs of the private sector. Because, for example, the insurance industry has been pushing for more resilience as well, because they they are the front line. They pay every time something goes wrong. So it's in their interest and also in their client's interest, I would argue, to, to be able to, well, for companies to get back to a sort of fully operational level, even in case of a successful hostile disruption or a disruption by Mother Nature. So this is, I think, ordinarily, NATO would have very little to do with the private sector. But in the area of resilience, it all comes together. It's fantastic to see not just your work, but the work in, in some NATO member states. And you also mentioned partner states like Sweden and Finland. But the Czech Republic, for example, is doing this extremely useful exercise called the Grey Zone exercise for, for industry and, and the armed forces are testing exactly this. So beyond what NATO headquarters is doing, I think there are a lot of things that countries can learn from one another. And that's a good thing about having allies. You, you, you don't have to start everything from scratch. You can learn from, from your friends and, and get a head start. So on that note, I don't want to make a name and shame star performers and those lagging behind. But what is, what is a resilience picture? within NATO more widely? Are there, let's focus on the star performers or let's focus on what's going well. And maybe if you feel brave, you can highlight what's what's not going so well. Yeah, I think overall, we're pretty lucky in the Alliance that this is a group of industrialized, developed nations with fairly resilient, I mean, I think every nation, you would say, you know, these are relatively resilient nations. I think that's something that I'm not just saying because my bosses and the 30 allies want me to say that. I'm saying that because I think that there is a recognition that you know the allies are actually are pretty pretty tough and adaptable. COVID-19 has been an interesting example of where that argument kind of falls apart, but also it it also kind of reinforces that argument that you know we have been able to maintain those critical government functions, you know our societies haven't completely, you know, gone off the rails. There have been real shocks and real stresses and our societies are proving to be adaptable. But that said, I think, you know, when we look at particularly this area of mass casualty care, that's one of the baseline requirements. How do you address, you know, the impact of mass casualties, some of the transport issues that we still face, and this problem of cascading effects or interdependencies on all three of those areas, I'd say that there is room for improvement. On one area, I'd say, you know, on communications, and, and this is where we see a lot of the sort of cyber, cyber concerns and em- emerging disruptive technologies. There's a lot that we don't know. But I think overall nations, it's interesting in the last year, have really made some pretty specific commitments about the importance of secure next generation networks. And I think we've actually seen a very interesting sort of trend, certainly since uh, NATO's baseline requirements were updated to take 5G into account and the EU 5G toolbox, where nations are, are actually looking at these issues in a pretty, pretty holistic way, pretty comprehensive way. So I think on on those issues, I'd, I'd say that we have some. We actually would say that people are really taking this seriously. But as I said, there there are a number of areas where I'd say across the board, even those nations that that fancy themselves to be very resilient, COVID nineteen has really been. You know, as the old saying goes, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Mike Tyson said that. And, and <laughs> Famous strategies, but it's so true. So true. Yeah. You have a lot of links to Sweden, and I I thought while you were speaking, I thought of something that NATO or, or NATO member states individually 
could learn from Sweden, which is the, the total defense exercise that Sweden used to do during the Cold War, massive exercise involving the armed forces and virtually every part of society. And it seems to me that NATO is ready for a total resilience exercise that, that would bring in all these different sectors. And NATO does enormous military exercises to not just to prepare itself, but, but to show to adversaries that this is what, what we can do, so don't bother. It occurs to me that something like that it should be possible and, and, and is desirable in, in the area of resilience. So I'm not asking you to, on this podcast, tell the, the Secretary General or the North Atlantic Council what to do, but do you think that would be something that would work and could be done, maybe originating with NATO or coordinated by NATO? Well, I think actually we're already doing it. The good part about it is that in the NATO annual training and exercise guidance, there is already a requirement to take civil preparedness into account. And so what we have seen in the last few years has been military planners, when they're doing exercises, now taking civil considerations into account, you know, sort of integral to the exercise. Trident Juncture is a good example of that, where you know, there was a lot that was considered. At the end of the day, it was more the Norwegians that really used Trident Juncture to test their total defense system, which was a really great example. You know, I think, I think for example, the Swedes and the Finns and, and others took a lot of inspiration from that. I think there is actually, even when you look at the last US Defender 20 exercise, there was a civil component of that because so much of host nation support to move and project US forces is all private sector yeah. and civil sector. So we saw quite a bit there. Next year, NATO will have another major, actually, no, it's this year, Steadfast Defender, which is another major NATO exercise happening this year. And it is, again, testing the ability to move our forces around that will have a civil component. But I think there's also kind of a requirement to kind of walk a little bit, you know, before we properly run on this. You'll know that the past 20 years of expeditionary operations out of area have meant that the military's interaction with civil authorities has been, you know, very tactical. You know, it's been arranging for humanitarian assistance, you know, in conflict areas. It's a very different set of what we used to call, you know, civil military cooperation or CIMIC. I think now there is this growing recognition that civil military engagement for the purposes of deterrence and defense or resilience looks a lot different than civil military cooperation in an expeditionary context. Yeah. So re regrowing that capacity from, you know, the policy to the doctrine and then all the way through to exercises and training and operational planning is something that that I think we still need to work on. But I think the, you know, the ground has been laid for that and then we need, just need to continue walking it. I completely agree. And that the only way to find out where the shortfalls are is, from my perspective, to keep exercising, because it's something may seem completely obvious on paper, but then when you exercise, you realize there are critical gaps in the procedure or even in capabilities. So that sounds terribly boring. But for example, that, that Swedish total defense exercise that was resurrected last year after three decades of, of not happening. One of the key things that the participants or the, the leaders discovered was that nobody had any phone numbers available. And if the internet is knocked out and you do need to call somebody on the phone, that is not a detail anymore. It's a, it's a fundamental mm -hmm. issue. And so things like that. So, and I know you bring together private sector participants and, and others at NATO for exactly that sort of red teaming and brainstorming and testing and practicing. So more power to you and, and your team. So we'll look forward to, to more results in, in uh, 2021 and 
hopefully NATO won't have to, to transport a lot more medical supplies to COVID patients because we're all getting mm-hmm. vaccinated. So thank you very much, Hasit, and thank you to all of you for listening. And as always, thank you to our producers, Olivia Leslie and Anya Terrell. If you like the show, feel free to subscribe and comment on Apple and Spotify. And of course, feel free to tweet to me to agree or disagree at Elizabeth Brawl. We'll be back very soon with another episode, another guest who is doing pioneering work. See you on the cusp.